Bibles and turning again to the book of John chapter 15. And I think in the uh, main part of the uh, slugfest over the verses, that was the last one. So <laughs> we'll read from that tonight. John 15, I'd like to just read verses 1 through 8 once again and ask you to follow along uh, as, I, as I read from there. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus says, I am the vine, true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, or pruneth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. That'll end our scripture reading for tonight. Let's bow our heads, and we'll just ask God's blessing before we delve into the scripture tonight. Father, once again, we are grateful for your kindness and love to us. Thank you for your presence with us in all, of our, in all the days of our pilgrimage. Thank you for your nearness, and thank you that we know it's true even if we don't always sense it. We accept it by faith, just as we do the fact that you are aware of every detail of our lives, even as we, we inquired into this morning, and we're reminded, Lord, of your great care. And uh, we think of the Scripture in conjunction with that, that says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Thank you that the word of God bears a solid testimony to your loving kindness and your gracious involvement in our lives. And to that end, Lord, you've assembled us once again in the house of the Lord tonight. I pray that uh, having our Bibles and hearing your word, each heart and life will be enriched and blessed. Thank you for each whom you've gathered tonight. And pray, Father, that you would just suit a blessing for us all May each of us go away with some help that we've derived from our Christian lives because we pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, tonight's message is called The Life-Giving Vine because remember that we are looking at this passage that Jesus entered into with the disciples as part of the Upper Room Discourse and uh, uses a very familiar figure. And in this, where he identifies himself as the vine, his father as the husbandman or vine dresser, and then there are also the branches. So you have three different people or uh, persons with roles in this. First of all, last week we saw the father and his role is that of caring. He's the loving vine dresser. Tonight we see the life-giving vine. And I'd like to use the word sustaining for this tonight. And we will get to next week, God willing, the fruit-bearing branches. And we'll see exactly what that uh, role turns out to be and see what is involved in this. But Jesus is the second one, right in the middle. And Jesus identifies himself in verse number one. I am the true vine. Jesus is the life-giving vine. Jesus is the one whose role it is to give and sustain life, to give life and to nourish it, to supply life and to sustain it. Among all those words, I like the word sustain to use tonight as emphasizing the role that or the part in all of this that Jesus Christ himself plays. There are two thoughts that I think come out of this. If Jesus Christ is the life-giving vine, if it is his role 
if it is his function in this to sustain the branches, then I think, first of all, what this generates is the thought that it is absolutely crucial that we have, number one, a genuine relationship with Christ. Secondly, that we have an ongoing relationship with Christ. So two simple thoughts tonight, but I I promise you that there's going to probably be more than we can do here tonight. Uh, There's more here than meets the eye, and I'm sure that for many of you folks who've been reading the Bible a long time, you've sensed this. Whenever you come to the Gospel of John, isn't it always paradoxical that um, that's the first book that we give people so often to read when they're starting out with the Bible, and we start with that with little kids many times because we talk about the fact that it's simple. You can understand it. But, you know, that's kind of a a two-pronged thing because that's true. It's also true that it's extraordinarily deep. (laughs) <laughs> and that, that really is the mark of utter genius when you can take things that are huge concepts and, and make them in such a way that people can understand them or write in such a way that people can read what you write, but at the same time, there's plenty there to delve and delve and study and study and learn more and more. So tonight, especially as we think about both of these points, I want to emphasize a word that I suspect doesn't often really get emphasized in messages here. I'm not trying to be novel. I'm not trying to be uh, unique. I'm simply trying to bring out a thought that I think is really important to see uh, in both of these concepts that are before us tonight. Notice in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Well, when we think about this, and even later in the passage, that verse number 5 that we had in the sword drill tonight, I am the vine doesn't have the word true repeated there. But in the introduction, in the first statement that Christ himself makes when he refers to himself, he says, I am the true vine. Now, I think you would agree with me that God doesn't waste words. So why is it that he includes that word true? Wasn't it enough just to say, I am the vine? He does that later. But no, he starts off and he emphasizes, I am the true vine. Let me see if I can sort of lead you along up to the point that I really want to make. First of all, it's kind of interesting when you look at this word true, there are actually, it's obviously an adjective. And when you look at this in the original language, there are actually two forms of this. They each have a slightly different ending. The one that Jesus chooses to use here has the ending on it that when you see an adjective made up this way, it tends to emphasize the idea of that which is genuine. In other words, it's true. It's true in the sense that it's the real, the genuine thing. Let's lead along a little bit more, delve into this within the Gospel of John and some of the other writings of John. Did you know that in the Gospel of John, let's turn back to chapter 1 for a moment, that this isn't the only time this is said about Christ, that, that this word true, true in the sense of real, true in the sense of genuine, is used to set Christ apart. Look in verse number one, uh, verse number nine, rather, of chapter one. Look at this. It says here, that was the true light. It's that same word. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. All right, turn over a couple of pages to chapter number six. And let's look at a verse here. Here's something also kind of that builds and is interesting. Here you've got another discourse where Jesus is talking about, I am the bread of life. It it, uh, concerns another of those I am sayings of Jesus. We'll look at verse 32. 
um, John chapter 6, verse 32, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Did you ever notice that? That yes, he says, I am the bread of life, but also makes the statement, I am the true bread, the real bread, the genuine bread. Now, let's keep a finger somewhere in John if, you, if you're close to chapter 15 so you get back to that, that's good. But let's turn over to the little epistle, the first epistle of John towards the back of the New Testament, and we want chapter 5. You're actually going to find this word true, the same one that we've got before us in John 15.1. Going to find this used three times. So you, this, this really packs a wallop to make the point. Verse number 20, right towards the end of the chapter, Next to the last verse, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. So you begin to sense when you've hear the explanation of the word, then you begin to see some kind of familiar verses that use this, and then you get to thinking about, well, why does it, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but he also says, it also says of him, that was the true light. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, but it also says of him, I am the tr that true bread that came down from heaven. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, he is, the, he is the true God and eternal life. You kind of get the impression, right, that there's a hint of an idea, the sense of a contrast between competitors, those who claim that they are this, but who are counterfeit and who are imposters and who really are not. And folks, you know something along those lines and in those concepts, that's true across the board. There are all kinds of things or people So think about this for a moment. Lots of people claim to have the true light, but they don't. Lots of people and lots of things are offered to us in this world as food for the soul, but they leave you hungry. They're just husks like the prodigal son. He fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. That's all they are. There are lots of people who talk about the way of life, but it's not the true way of life, is it? That was certainly true in 1 John when he's writing with the backdrop of the, the Gnostics. He's actually writing that book against a particular heresy that was going on in that day and in that time. And so the statement is very, very much well taken. So there's a hint of that which is genuine as opposed to that which is a substitute, that which is really not the genuine thing. You know, it's like these things that have fake sugar in them. I haven't found one yet that tastes decent. And I, I tell my wife, I've gotten extraordinarily picky in my old age. If I'm going to consume calories, I want them to count. I want to like them. <laughs> so it's not hard to get an amen on that, I tell you that. <laughs> That sweet and low and all that other stuff is just, yeah. Anyway, through Jesus' words, that is his message. Here's, here's, I think, the point that he's making here. That Jesus is really, Jesus is the only real source 
of life, the only real source of sustenance, of supply, of, of sustaining sustenance for us as believers. That's true in the beginning sense. That is, he's the only source of life for us to have life at all, true life, spiritual life, that is in being born again. But in the second thought, this idea of ongoing supply, he's the only true supply as well. Many other things seem to want to vie for the attention and substitute themselves that really aren't the genuine thing. So let's see how that comes out in this passage because as you work down to verse number three, and by the way, along this line, Jesus made another statement in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse six. Almost everybody here, I'm sure, knows that verse. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So what is it about Christ? Well, first of all, it's through his words. Look at verse number three, what he said. Now ye are clean through the words through the word which I have spoken unto you. I don't think I had the opportunity or time last time to bring out because I knew we were going to be covering some of this ground again, but we did talk about this verse a little bit last week because there's a, there's a contrast here. What's being said here is true of the 11, but it wasn't true of Judas. And so Christ says to them, through the word, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And the tense that's used here in the original is a Greek perfect, which has the significance behind it of something that takes place in the past with lasting, ongoing results. Well, that was true for 11 of them. They had heard the message. They heard Jesus' word. They believed. And as a result of that experience, they were cleansed and they were born again. And you know what? That has ongoing effects. That's always true once it happens in our lives, isn't it? Once we're born again, once we really are a part of the family of God, once we really and truly have eternal life, that's not something you have to repeat any more than you can be born the second time in the, in the natural sense. You're born, you're born. The born, the same thing is true spiritually. Once you're born, you're in the family of God. It's not something that you lose or that God takes back. But let's go to that verse that compares to this back in chapter 11 um, when, or chapter 13, rather, when Jesus is talking to them. We'll look at this again so that it makes sense to us. So he's talking to them also in the upper room discourse, and he says, in that context of where he had taken the, the towel and the basin of water, and he had washed their feet. And he says, verse 10, Jesus saith unto them, He that washeth need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. And, of course, we know, that, we know that symbolism there. We know how once a person has a bath, well, that's the cleansing, but you could walk the, those roads, especially with sandals, which is what they wore, and you'd, you know, your feet would get dirty, and that's why it was customary when you went to someone's house, they would offer you water to wash your feet and oftentimes oil for your face because of the, the harshness of the sun and this was just a, a common, ordinary courtesy that was offered to guests when they, they came to a person's home. But see, talking about that which is real and that which is counterfeit, there were 11 of them who had that genuine experience. There were 11 of them who heard that message and savingly and truly and genuinely believed. There was one who didn't. That's why Christ says here in John 10, 13 verse 10 and then 11 for he knew 
who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are clean, but not all. So Judas did not see. The others did. The others had that genuine experience. They, they really had partaken of the only way to have eternal life, and that is, just as Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ is the only way to have life. So it's essential in the very beginning that we have a genuine relationship. That's, that's what comes out of this emphasis of Christ saying, I am the true vine. Think about another uh, figure of speech or place in the Gospel of John that Jesus brought this out. Go back to chapter 10 for a moment. And here you have a totally different figure of speech, but it makes the same point. John chapter 10, verse 8. Jesus says this, speaking about that, that hint of a contrast where you have these different verses like where we are now. It says, I am the true vine. Well, Christ said this. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Verse 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Well, isn't it interesting in how many of these different contexts where Jesus spoke one of those I am sayings? Because in John 10, you know what it was. I am the good shepherd. Well, then he had to go to the trouble to point out all that ever came before me were thieves and robbers. There, the, there is the thief. There is the robber. There is the work of the devil who comes to plunder the flock and to make inroads with the flock. And Judas, Judas looked like them. Judas acted like them. But Judas was really not one of them. And so it's very important. Did you know also that Jesus told a parable? I think we'll save the time and not turn, but I think you're familiar. Jesus told a story, a, a, a parable. Matthew chapter 13 is one of the, the parables of the kingdom of the wheat and the tares. Did you know that the whole, the linchpin of that whole thing is, and 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 I don't know how many people might be aware of this, that you might have heard messages on this, so you might know this, or maybe even know it from experience, but in Bible culture, when Jesus gave this an example, they would understand it right away. Verse number 26, when Jesus told this, he said, but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So what happened Someone went out to sow, sowed the good seed, but then the enemy came in and sowed the tares. But you really aren't able to tell the difference until the fruit appears. It's the difference between the wheat and the darnel. They're, they're virtually, which is what this is felt to be, that particular weed, or what I guess it's a weed, but the darnel, that, that when they grow up together, as they initially begin to grow up, you really can't distinguish them until the wheat begins to put forth those kernels of grain, the other does not, then you can tell them apart. So this whole parable kind of hinges on the idea that you can't tell them apart except for fruit, genuine fruit, which is exactly what we read about in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, Many shall come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out 
devils in thy name. They look the same, they talk the same, they act the same, but Jesus said, by their fruits shall ye know them. In this particular case, in that Matthew 13, 26, again, it's a bit of a technicality, but there's an interesting fact here when it says, then appeared the tares also. That word that's translated appeared there, that's, that's an excellent translation of it, but it's kind of interesting to go back behind it and look at what you've got because actually, literally, it's the word, the, it's, the, it's the Greek verb phino, which means to shine. You say, well, how do they translate and get appeared out of it? Well, because in the passive voice, it means uh, has a different thought to it. So they're, they're spot on with this. The translators have it exactly right. Fino, which means to shine, but used in the passive voice, that the sense of that would come out. It's a little bulky to translate it this way. Appear is better or revealed would be fine as well. But the idea would be in the, to bring out the passive voice significance of to shine, it would be when the light was shined. A lot of things become evident when the light is shined, right? And in this particular, that you don't see the difference until the light is really shined. Well, in this case, the light that shined in the parable, in the verse, the light that shined is the lack of fruit. But the scary thing is, the two are indistinguishable until that happens. That's why, as I pointed out, folks, recently in that message on Sunday morning, the disciples were shocked when Jesus made that statement to them, one of you is going to betray me. They were absolutely shocked. I mean, they knew Judas had his rough edges, but <clears throat> they had their rough edges too. They were shocked. He looked the same. He talked the same. Did the same things they did. Preached like they did. Worked miracles like they did. And so I point out to you tonight again that it is the point that's being made here in the very beginning by Jesus saying, I am the true vine. The vine gives life. Without it, there is no life. And that has the initial point when life begins. Without Christ, without a personal, genuine relationship with him, there is no life. Therefore, it's incumbent upon every single one of us here tonight. I ask you just to be certain in your own heart. Do you know that you're born again? Do you know that you have genuinely trusted Christ as your personal Savior? I like what one pastor commented on this. He said this, It is not my role, nor is it yours, to figure out who are the tares and who are the wheat. Let God do that. Perhaps the main reason this parable is here is to sound a warning to all of us who profess Christianity to examine ourselves to make sure we are in the true faith following the teaching of Christ and building on a right foundation. You can build, but other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, right? You know, they were absolutely shocked when they heard that one of them was a counterfeit, but one was. When the light was shined, Christ knew all along. God knows here tonight. I can make this... Let me try to make this as simple as I know how, and I realize this is probably old ground to a lot of us here tonight, but let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. Just ask yourself the simple question, 
Do I know that I'm truly saved? Am I certain of that? So then the question you might ask is, or that I should anticipate as a preacher is, all right, what happens if there's someone there who really is asking that question tonight? How can I be sure? Well, John tells us, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we have a no-so salvation? 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. Let's look at it together. The words are simple. Everyone can grasp this. Let's do it. All right, John says, this is the record. Here's the testimony. That God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. All right, you want to know where eternal life is? Eternal life is in his Son. All right, let's, let's do something here tonight. See this? What's it say? This life is in his Son. So in my left hand, I have a pen. We're going to let the pen represent this life, eternal life. This life is in his Son. We'll let the Bible represent his Son. All right, what does it say? This life is in his Son. So if I offer you this Bible tonight as a gift, this is the record that God hath given, gifted to us eternal life. So if I offer you tonight this Bible and you come up here right now and accept it as a free gift, what did you get when you accepted this gift? You got life because remember what it says. And this life is in his Son. That's why when we read the next verse, let's do it now, it gives us the acid test. You, here's how you can tell then, all right, how can I know if I'm saved? All right, if this life is in his son, then it says, here's the test. He that hath son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. It's that simple. It really is. So the question I have to ask myself is tonight is, do I have Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Has there been a time in my life when I have come to him, understanding that I needed a Savior, needed the forgiveness of my sins, and trusted him, asked him to save me? And then John summarizes the whole thing by saying, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You don't have to guess about it and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. It's the only way to know that you genuinely have life because Jesus is the true vine. So the first thing that comes out of this is it's absolutely critical that we have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, but what happens once you have that? Well, like any relationship, it needs to be nourished, right? It needs to be sustained. It needs care to, to grow and mature. And so we also, need, we also need and depend on Jesus Christ for an ongoing relationship. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Are there other things that sometimes we tend to look to or that offer themselves to us? And the truth of that matter is, yeah, there's a lot of things that we lean on that aren't the right thing. And many times we neglect our spiritual life. And when we don't cultivate and, 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 and have a walk with, with Christ so that that life-giving supply, sustenance, is constantly flowing to us. And like Peter, we follow the Lord afar off. 
distantly were not nourishing our spiritual lives and it's easy for us to kind of almost begin to wither as he talks about here well Jesus is the true vine he's not only the key to spiritual life he's the key to he's the only real key to an ongoing healthy relationship spiritual fruitfulness it's only a matter of of the care we give to our relationship with him because he's the key to it so let's go back and i want to show you some scriptures because this is where i'm saying to you there's more ground than we'll have time to cover tonight because christ is drawing on things that are all through the bible that i think a lot of times we just haven't really thought about this whole concept of the vine and actually the uh, sword drill tonight was very well timed because of some of the old testament verses let's go back first of all to psalm 80 because, see, in the Old Testament, Israel was, that was a figure in the Old Testament. The vine was a figure for the nation of Israel. And why that's so um, interesting, let's first of all get Psalm 80 under our, our belts for a minute. And I think what I'll do is have you turn to Psalm 80, if you would, and then the other verses will work forward from here. So once you get to, to Psalm 80, it'll be a little bit easier if we do it that way. Let's, let's see if we find a place in the Old Testament. This is a good passage for this, where it talks about Israel being the vine in the Old Testament. Psalm 80, look at verse 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it and the boughs thereof were like goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea, her branches and her branches unto the river. So the vine is Israel. God brought her out of Egypt, planted her in the land of Israel, and nourished her. And in the beginning, she prospered. For what reason did God do this? Well, do you know that we can also make the sense, just as Jesus says, I am the true vine, and it's the vine that provides the sustenance to the branches, life, the life-giving vine. So we could also say that in the Old Testament, Israel was the vine that God intended Israel to have a life-giving purpose, a missionary purpose. The place you want to go for that, and I'm not going to ask you to turn because I told you we'd go to Psalm 80 and work forward from there. But in speaking of Psalm 80, where he brought the vine out of Egypt, what did he say at to them almost immediately after he brought them out of Egypt? If you want the reference, it's Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and verse 6. Now, therefore, he says, if ye will obey my voice indeed and shall keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Oh. What does that really mean? Well, a priest is a mediator. And so he's a facilitator of a relationship with God. That's what priests, that's what their function. They, they stood between the people and God and facilitated that relationship with God. It's exactly what God was doing with the nation of Israel. He, he took that vine out of Egypt. 
He brought them into the promised land as he had promised years before. He, he nourished them so that they might prosper and grow. Why? So that they might be the source of light and life to the ends of the earth. You know, even the geography shows that because if you look at a map sometime and you look, it's impossible to get from the north in Mesopotamia and all the rest and down into Egypt. They didn't travel the desert. They came through Palestine. Everybody going from Egypt north, everybody going from the other way south, passed through Palestine. Why'd God put them right in the middle? So they'd be right there to fulfill that life-giving purpose, that missionary purpose of sharing the life of God to the nations of the world. Did they succeed in that purpose? No. So what happened to them? Let's continue on by looking at verses that develop this using the imagery of the vine. Same thing that happens to us if we're not careful about our relationship with God. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation, but it has everything to do with maintaining a close walk with God so that we can be spiritually dynamic and be spiritually fruitful. Well, they weren't careful about that. They grew distant from God. They began to look to idols. So let's go now to Isaiah chapter 5. That was one of the verses uh, in tonight's uh, sword drill. Here's another place where he's, he talks about this idea of Israel being the vine. Look at verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray thee, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down and will say, lay waste to it and it shall not be pruned nor digged but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Were they faithful in their mission? No. Were they careful about their walk with God? No. What happened to them? Instead of continuing to look to the true, the true vine, to continue... To, to depend upon God and to nurture their, their relationship with God, they grew distant from God and careless, and they began to look to idols instead of to God, who is the only true source of spiritual fruitfulness and nourishment. Turn to Hosea chapter 10. That's the first of the minor prophets, and so hopefully we can figure that one out. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. And they became empty as a vine. Israel is an empty vine, it says in verse number one. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images empty. 
Why? Because they grew distant from God, they began to look to idols instead of to the true and living God, and therefore they became empty and unfruitful. Turn to chapter 14 of Hosea. Verse number 8. You get the impact right at the very end of the verse. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? See, there's the problem. Jesus said, I am the true vine. I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me, he said to them, from me is thy fruit. Not those idols. You'll never be a dynamic, successful, fruitful, growing Christian apart from a cultivated, nourished, cared for relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what happened to them? Eventually, they became so distant from God that they were basically totally apostate. And as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verses 15 through 20, those branches were broken off. It's the same kind of an idea that you have in John 15 where it says there, he prunes some branches, others he takes away. He takes away which ones? The dead ones. The ones who really have no spiritual life. Now in our passage, so let's take all that Let's take all that that we saw. That was a lot of work. But let's take all that that we saw now and bring it back over to John chapter 15 and see how Jesus, in some three simple statements, makes this point over and over again. Three separate times. Look in chapter, he makes it negatively, he makes it positively. Look in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. What words do we want to notice? The branch can't bear fruit of itself. We can't be successful, dynamic Christians, fruit-bearing Christians, growing Christians, maturing Christians, apart from Christ and apart from a, a carefully nourished relationship with him. The, you just don't bear fruit of yourself, Jesus said to them. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Look at this. For without me ye can do how much? Nothing. Look in verse 6. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. What happens to even a Christian who really does have a genuine relationship with Christ, but doesn't nourish it. You know, it's pretty easy to dry up on the vine. You will. There's no question about that. He also says it positively. Look at it, verse 7 and 8. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. The person who carefully nourishes and cares for his relationship with Christ, he says, will bring much fruit and the Father will be glorified. Thus, I hope we see at this point, Jesus is not only the key to having spiritual life, he's also the key to having a spiritual, a, a prosperous and fruitful spiritual life. You know, here's something that's kind of interesting along this line. In thinking about the statements that Jesus made, without me, ye can do nothing. A number of years ago, uh, a study was, um, the, the, the Associated Press uh, published a report about a study that was done by an agricultural school in Iowa. This is kind of interesting. 
it was reported that for one acre to bring forth 100 bushels of corn, in addition to the many hours of the farmer's labor, here's what was required. Four million pounds of water, 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of yellow sulfur, and other elements too numerous to list. In addition to all of these things, which none of us produces, it also took the right amount of rain and sunshine at the right time. It was estimated, therefore, as a conclusion and a result of this study, that only 5% of the produce of a farm could in any sense be attributed to the efforts of man. <laughs> and if you and I are honest, we have to admit the very same thing is true about our spiritual lives. The things that we do don't amount to much. The only thing that really lasts is the things that, that Christ does through us. If we learn to depend on him, he will not disappoint us. He will sustain us in every endeavor to which he has called us. So the question really becomes tonight, are we giving care to our relationship with him? Or, to put it differently, what things other than Jesus are we depending on to live the Christian life? What are we leaning on? What are we depending on? Because it gets down to a matter of neglect. There's an interesting story about that. This article was carried in the April 27, 1992 edition of U.S. News and World Report. For anybody familiar with Chicago, you'll perk right up on this, but it said for last of the most de of the last decade, so that would have been the 80s, Chicagoans who worked in the Loop, which again, if you're familiar with the city at all, you know, it's kind of the downtown business district, kind of the old heart and hub of things. Uh, they, they could afford, the article said, to ignore the city's budget crisis and Washington's cutback of, aids to, of aid to cities you kind of ignore that, and it didn't really seem to hurt the prosperity and the business of the city that much. But the article said last week they learned something about the price of neglecting the underpinnings of all that economic growth. They learned that when a quarter billion gallons of murky Chicago River water gushed into the 60-mile network of turn-of-the-century freight tunnels under the loop and brought nearly all the businesses to a soggy halt. And it turned out that a top city official had known about the leak, but acting for a cash-strapped government, it said, had delayed repairs that would have cost only $50,000. Estimates on the final cost of the damages ran to higher than a billion dollars. Neglect carries a high price sometimes, doesn't it, beloved? So as we talked about in the first message, this is what's going on in our lives. God is teaching us more and more the lesson of humility, more and more the necessity of our dependence on Christ, more and more that apart from him we can do nothing, more and more, as John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. More and more the need to humbly depend upon him, knowing that he alone is sufficient, and not to neglect our walk with him, our Bible reading, our prayer time, all of those things that are so vital for us to draw off of the power that, that he supplies. Because he is the true vine, and 
He will not disappoint. But isn't it amazing sometimes what we have to go through to learn that and to realize that? Someone said diamonds are formed under great pressure and heat. If these conditions do not exist, they simply aren't formed. It's not that you get smaller diamonds. It's not that you get um, low-quality diamonds. It's that apart from pressure and heat, you don't get any diamonds. So it is that God brings about refining fires and pressure into our lives. Why? To make us draw up close to him. To wean us from that dependence on ourselves and other things around us. To help us to realize that only through Christ can we be fruit-bearing Christians. The difference between a diamond and a piece of coal is a lot of pressure. I want to leave you with this tonight. Here's a an example from the Bible. You know, Stephen talks about this, and if you're in John 15, sure, just turn over. This will be the last place we look. Acts chapter 7. What about Moses? Do you ever think about the fact that if you study the life of Moses, you can divide it into thirds? Forty years in Pharaoh's court. Forty years with all the wisdom and learning of the Egyptians. Forty years to learn that he was somebody. Well, Moses labored under that illusion that he was somebody. And so at the end of that 40-year period, Stephen is summarizing this about Moses. And he says in verse 25, you know how Moses went out that day and he saw the Egyptian taskmaster who was abusing one of the Israelites. And what does it say? He slew him and hit him in the sand. Stephen says the next day he went back out and he saw two of them fighting. Chapter 24, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him and what and was, that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Why did he do that? It says, Stephen says, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And then he says, the next day he went out again, he showed themself as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, who made thee a judge? and a ruler over us. Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses knew that it was known, and he had to flee. Forty years learning to be somebody. And then 40 years on the backside of a desert learning to be nobody. That's hard. But you know what it yielded after those 40 years of being on the backside of the desert, staring at those goats and sheep all day long and not much else? One day he walked up on a bush that burned and had a face-to-face -face experience with the living God. And he walked away from that, and he walked away from that second 40-year period in his life, having learned the first 40 years that he was somebody having learned the next 40 years that he was nobody, into a period of 40 years of fruitfulness, fruitful service for God. And you know what? Jesus, just like Jesus said, Jesus does not, does not ever fail us. If we are close to him, if we draw off of him, no matter what situation he places us in, he will always be sufficient 
for it. And Moses found that to be true. And Moses had some tough situations to be found in. He was always up to it. Even the speaking that he didn't think he could do. I always wonder about that because he was trained, the Bible says, in all the wisdom and speech of the Egyptians. And then he told God he didn't know how to talk. It just, to me, sounds like an excuse. He had all those speech classes. They didn't keep him in Pharaoh's court to be a dumb bunny. But I think after 40 years of staring at nothing, he must have maybe thought he'd forgotten a few of those speech lessons. I close with this. Everybody knows the name J. Hudson Taylor. J. Hudson Taylor is a celebrated missionary who served for more than 50 years in China and was the founder of China Inland Mission. <laughs> On one of his trips from China, he was invited to speak in Australia. He was in Melbourne, Australia, and the moderator, the Presbyterian moderator, who was tasked with introducing Taylor before Taylor got up to speak. Sometimes that's not easy, and he did his best. I mean, he wanted, he wanted to pay the tribute that he felt Taylor was due, and so he labored through the finest words he could come up with to introduce Taylor, and he finally got to the end and climaxed the whole thing that he said by saying that he was presenting now to his audience our illustrious guest. Taylor got up, and I don't think the man or the audience were prepared for the first sentence that he uttered. Here's what it was. Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. 20 years before that, Taylor wrote an article, an editorial. In that, he said this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. I'm the true vine, Jesus said. If you want spiritual vitality, strength, fruitfulness, we simply cannot neglect our relationship with Christ. First of all, we must know that we have a genuine relationship with Christ, and then we must attend to an ongoing relationship with Christ. And if we do, Jesus Christ has endless supply. Oh God in heaven, thank you tonight that our hearts can rejoice in this wonderful truth that there is a well with you that is deep, that will never run dry. And thank you that no matter how many times we go, no matter how deeply we draw, no matter how deeply we drink, we will always be satisfied. We will never be thirsty. We will always have enough. And I pray that you'll encourage us with that tonight and give us a renewed hunger and determination to walk with you, to find your sufficiency in every day of our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our songbooks tonight. We're going to close with page 124. Do you know this one, Blessed is the Man? Do we know that one, Kathy? Okay, great. Let's turn to the page then. Two verses. I love this. I think you'll find it drawing on some of that same imagery. Page 124.